Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. And then the other thing is what I was saying earlier. I wanted everyone, everyone who ever hears me give a talk or anybody who reads my book, I want them to know that, yes, I can help you through these other, you know, through this network of women. I can help you figure out how to move up in your workplace and change policy. But it is just as important to just stay in, put one foot in front of the other, get your job done, but ask for what you need, the flexibility you need, and be open about the challenges because we cannot solve a problem we cannot see. Hi there, I'm Lori McGoodwin, founder and CEO of Career Contessa, and you're listening to season two of The Females, a podcast that deep dives into the world of women, work, and what it takes to build a successful and fulfilling career on your terms. This season will focus on disruption. From disrupting industries to old narratives and definitions of success, and even disrupting new ways of thinking. Today's interview is with Lauren Smith Brody, author of The Fifth Trimester and a Woman Disrupting Working Motherhood. After enjoying an incredibly successful 16-year career in the magazine publishing world, working her way up to the number two spot as executive editor for Glamour Magazine, Lauren left to write about The Fifth Trimester, the time she describes as when the working mom is born. And while I'm not a mom, I'm incredibly fascinated by this transition. It's no big secret that it's a struggle to have children and go back to work. We do not live in a particularly supportive culture when it comes to working and being a mother in tandem. In fact, the average length of largely unpaid maternity leave for women, Lauren surveyed, was about 8.5 weeks. Other research analyzing data from the Department of Labor shows one in four new moms returns to work less than two weeks after baby's birth. For many, challenges persist when back in the workplace due to inadequate pumping breaks, after-hour demands, and children's inevitable sick days. Instead of relying on learning the hard way, Lauren set out to write a book, a book that would connect the dots and serve new mothers a collective post-pregnancy mentor. On this episode, we'll explore the fifth trimester and how working moms can navigate their own return to work without feeling so alone in doing so. And now, this is The Females. All right, Lauren, tell us about your career path leading up to the fifth trimester. Sure. So I, for years, was an editor in the women's magazine industry. Uh, Most of my years I spent at Glamour Magazine doing a bunch of different jobs there and rising up to be executive editor, which is the number two editor. And um, the industry went through a lot of changes um, in my years there. So I got to try a lot of different things, producing events and even, you know, TV shows that we were doing and stuff like that. 
Um, along the way, I had my two boys, and I was really lucky to be working largely in a very female environment with you know other women who either were moms or certainly were familiar with talking about things like breastfeeding in the workplace and um, pumping, that sort of thing. And yet it was still an incredibly challenging transition for me. So it took me some years. Um, My husband was actually in his medical training, and so we were very dependent on sort of the steadiness of my um, employment at that point. But once I had my second son and got a few years into working and mothering with him, I realized that I had really approached the return to work as almost a an additional trimester. And I had heard of the fourth trimester, which was the newborn phase and sort of the idea of recreating the womb for your newborn baby. And I just decided one day in my head, the fifth trimester was a thing. And so <laughs> I, I went about getting it trademarked and I... I knew I wanted to write a book. I had wanted to write a book since I was um, a little girl, but just didn't know what it would be about. And suddenly I found this really new meaning in the work I was doing. A lot of women, I think, experience sort of the urge for, you know, a different kind of satisfaction in their work after having children. I definitely experienced that. And so I went about looking for um, a book agent and simultaneously realized that there was no way in the world I could fill 80,000 or 100,000 words just with my own experience, which was admittedly pretty privileged in spite of the fact that it had been hellaciously hard to go back to work (laughs) both times. And so I did a big survey and thank God for social media because it spread it around really quickly. And I could see using the tools that I used that it was a pretty diverse array of mothers responding to my questions about their transitions back to work. So there were single moms, adoptive moms. There were moms who worked in hourly wage working jobs and professional sort of career ladder climbers and um, moms who worked part-time, who worked for themselves, moms who worked very much for the man. And given all of that, I was able to really build a skeleton for this book I wanted to write that would connect the dots between all of our experiences and offer women a collective mentor um, mm-hmm. of the things that we'd all learned the hard way and the successes and struggles we'd had to really help one another through this. Because mm-hmm. also in my research, I discovered that there was a reason that it was really hard for me to go back to work, which was that uh, we're not living in a particularly supportive culture around new parenthood. And our federal laws certainly don't do enough to support new parents coming back to work and new parents at home with their babies in those early months. So given all that, and given that, you know, most families are dual income families, I really wanted to look at what would best support these women, you know, through this admittedly challenging time, but knowing that most of them need to be there, how do you do it? And so that's what I put together. Right. How old are your boys now? They are seven and 10. Oh, wow. So you even had them somewhat close together. I'm sure three years yeah. goes by in a blink when you have kids. <laughs> oh, my my second one was actually, my second son was due on my first son's birthday. So wow. I was <laughs> not on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> well, and how is working motherhood being disrupted today compared to, you know, what it was when you were, when you f- were in the workplace and you had had your first son? It is amazing how much has changed even just in this decade. I think largely the biggest change is that women feel more open and honest about their motherhood in the workplace. And I think we have seen that in some of the most, some of the healthiest and most competitive industries, there's almost an arms race for benefits given around new parenthood, you know, who's got the best parental Mm -hmm. leave and, you know, who's got the most flexibility and It's interesting because those things have made headlines, which is fantastic because that does really help sort of change our idea of what's normal. And yet when you look at who's being offered them, it is a very select 
group of already extremely high-performing parents for the most part Mm -hmm. who have access to those kinds of benefits. And if that helps shift the norm, great. But I also felt like it was very important in this book and in the interviews that I did to communicate the idea that even if you're in an industry that is sort of baseline not that supportive, if you can be just one degree more transparent about the challenges Mm -hmm. of being a working parent, it gives us a problem to solve. You can't know what needs to be solved unless the problem is apparent. And so I really encourage all of my readers and and, uh, the women who I'm in touch with when I give corporate talks and things to just be like a little bit more exposed than they might like to be, knowing that it will ultimately benefit not just their own situations, but all of those around them and largely their company and help their company be more competitive. Right, right. I was going to say not being transparent doesn't really it, it doesn't help anybody, really. And no. I know it feels mm-hmm. uncomfortable at first to be a little vulnerable and say, this isn't perfect. But transparency ultimately leads to, as you, you're going to probably tell us, like actions being taken or policies being put into place and all of that's good. And I know it's always hard to be the first person to start that, but it, it, that's exactly. great that books like yours exist. And I know we talked about what inspired you to write The Fifth Trimester, but can mm-hmm. you define like what is The Fifth Trimester since, uh, and maybe even like what The Fourth Trimester trimester is because I think people are like, wait, aren't you skipping a number? So that might be good. Of course. Yeah. No, I remember somebody said to me in the very beginning, I had, there were two trains of thought. One was, oh, thank God somebody gave it a name. Now I know it's real. I feel so, I feel so good and validated. And somebody else was like, oh my God, like (laughs) what the heck? There's another trimester. Yeah. They're just depressed. (laughs) They're like, no. Yeah. Yeah. The first three, of course, you know about that's pregnancy. Um, And actually, even if you're adopting a baby, there's sort of this term that adoptive parents use called paper pregnant while you're anticipating the birth of a baby. And the fourth trimester I learned about from reading The Happiest Baby on the Block by Dr. Harvey Karp, who is an expert in, um, he's, he's a pediatrician and has this huge best-selling book that I really relied on that defines the fourth trimester as the first three months of a baby's life with the supposition that babies, human babies are actually born a whole trimester too early because of the size of the mother's pelvis and the baby's skull to accommodate a human brain. Wow. So you recreate the feeling of the womb by shushing and swaddling and all of these S verbs that make a baby feel cozy. And I remember reading his book and it was very helpful with my, with my first son in particular. And, and yet like every few pages, he would say something like, just get to 12 weeks, get to that 12 week point And your baby will wake up to the world and give something back to you and get, <laughs> start to get on a schedule, maybe sleep a little more. And I just kept thinking like, crap, <laughs> that's when I go back to work. That's when it's going to get good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I knew even then that I had a pretty, I had most of my maternity leave. It was FMLA, but a lot of it was covered by disability. There were a couple of unpaid weeks and yet, it, you know, and, and we were in a position to be able to save up and afford for that. But I knew even then that not everybody had even had access to those 12 weeks. And the statistic that I, that I know now is that only 56% of working parents are even eligible for FMLA, which gives you 12 weeks of job guaranteed unpaid leave. I'm shaking my head just because it's it, it's just I mean it's it's crazy that that exists and yeah. the United States does not guarantee any paid maternity leave let alone paid leave for both parents which is a whole nother conversation about the fact that that actually creates a lot of inequality in the workplace and really puts the burden on the employers to offer paid leave. Yes. Yes, exactly. Which any well, we're going to get into that, but what did you discover? <laughs> what did you discover in your research about paid family leave policies in general? Oh gosh, just how incredibly variable they are, industry to industry and workplace to workplace within those industries, and then really team by team. 
what I've learned in a lot of the companies that bring me in to do speaking, um, sort of corporate speaking and some corporate consulting for them as they help try to improve their policies and their culture is that policies aren't enough. And a lot of workplaces, at least at the managerial and HR level, have fantastic intentions and they kind of know what needs to happen. And mm-hmm. yet when you look at the actual raw numbers of how many dads are taking the six weeks of parental leave that they're offered and it ends up being like, you know, 10% take the full amount, something's going wrong there. So the policies can be there, but the culture has to support those policies so that people feel like they can actually use them. And that's that's where it gets really hard to thread the needle. Right. It's, it seems like we have two sides here, uh, industries and companies that don't even offer it, or they call it disability, which is kind of, right. I've never liked that term for it, but um, who aren't even offering it. So it's like, we just need to get them to understand, like, this is something you need to offer. And then we have this other side of the spectrum, which is they offer it, but people aren't actually taking advantage of it, or only the women are taking advantage of it. And mm-hmm. I mean, when you were doing your research, do you have like a shining star example of yeah. a company that, or a company <laughs> or an industry that's doing it really well? Yes. I mean, I can, I would love to, to shine that light on American Express. It's doing just, it's policies on paper are fantastic. And when you look at the numbers of women who are, and men who are actually using what's available to them, it's quite high. Um, they offer, I want to say it's 28, either 26 or 28 weeks of leave. I know that might incorporate some of the initial disability for, for the mother, but they also, this is really key. They, they allow you to keep your year end bonus for that same amount of time. And then it's only prorated after after that amount of leave if you negotiate to take more leave than that, which is which is really fantastic. And it's it's those hidden costs of taking leave that I think a lot of employers don't realize impact, you know, women's sort of ability to be able to stay in their careers and stay in their jobs. You know, even if you give paid leave, if someone works largely on commission or on year-end bonus, or if they're going to be out during their busiest time of the year and miss out on a lot of opportunities, that has financial impact. So they are doing, Amex is doing a great job. Um, I also am um, really impressed by the companies that have hourly wage workers like Starbucks that have started to offer, you know, even people who are working hour by hour access to, to paid leave. I think that's huge. And it's going to make a real difference. And I think when, you know, when other companies see that, you know, even hourly wage workers are able to have access to these humane benefits, everyone else feels like, gosh, we have to get on board too. Mm -hmm. In terms of what the actual kind of right number is, it's a scary number to say out loud in the United States because I, I don't even know what tiny, tiny, tiny percentage of people have access to this. But when you look at the research of what actually is protective of mom's mental health, mom's physical health and baby's physical health, it's not just six months of leave, it's six months of paid leave. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that is, you know, that's like a pie in the sky number. And I used to go into companies and, you know, if they gave three months of paid leave, I'd say, Hey, that's great. I've started saying, no, that's, that's actually, that's humane, (laughs) but we're not there yet. Like we can't applaud these companies that are giving what science tells us is really just the minimum of what's needed. And only in the United States do you have to ad hoc negotiate this stuff for yourself. And only in the United States do employers have to ad hoc figure out, like, how are we going to keep people and, and do right by humanity at the same time? Everywhere else, there are guideposts that really that, that help businesses and help individuals. Hey there, let's take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, BetterHelp. Have you ever felt like there is something interfering with your happiness or ability to move forward? What about feeling like there's a roadblock that's in your way or worse, keeping you from achieving your goals? 
Meet BetterHelp, online counseling that's here for you. BetterHelp allows you to connect with a professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. Get help on your own time and at your own pace with over 3,000 U.S. licensed therapists across all 50 states to choose from who are specialized in depression, stress, anxiety, self-esteem, relationships, anger, trauma, and more. You can start communicating with a counselor in under 24 hours. And if you're not happy with your counselor for any reason, you can request a new one at any time at no additional charge. Anything you share is confidential and you have four communication modes, text, chat, phone, and video available to you. You'll be able to schedule sessions as often as you want with just a few clicks. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. Females listeners get 10% off your first month with discount code FEMALES. That's F-E-M-A-I-L-S. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com females. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com females. All right, now let's get back to the show. Right. I was going to say, it's also, um, as much as I agree with that, I'm also like, as someone who employs, has employees like six months is, and we also have a small company like that. I see the burden for companies as well. Absolutely. You know, that is a lot of time to have a personnel, but be paying. And, um, I mean, the companies you mentioned while they're doing a great job, they're massive corporations too. So, um, which to be fair, like those are the companies that usually lead the way with this and then it trickles down. But how can working parents affect more family-friendly policies at work? I mean, I hate to say that the burden is on them, but it's clearly (laughs) one of those things where when it's happening to you, you go and advocate for it. So I, you know, like I, I don't want people to think like, I think that you guys should have to do the work, but sometimes that's what it takes to get what you want. I feel like you are quoting exactly what I just said in a conference <laughs> this last week. Cause I feel the same way. I was looking at an audience of 500 women and saying, Hey, it shouldn't have to be on us. And yet guess who's going to get it done. And that's not to say dads don't get it done too, because I feel like the dads who are really vocal about being able to bring their sort of family and home life needs into the workplace move mountains. But yeah, it is about not just sticking with your career in the first place to allow you to move up and have the authority and the agency to change policies. It's also about remembering that if that happens, you know, three or four or 10 years down the road for you, you may be past it, but you are, you're a subset of sort of survivors. Like you somehow, you had something supporting you, whether it is your fantastic brain, your fantastic partner, some set of circumstances that made it possible for you to stay in that can also sort of predispose you to to occasionally, you know, judge women who are going through it now who are asking for these things as millennials are and should be and think like, eh, I had to get through it. Like she has to pledge motherhood too. So squash that. (laughs) And then the other thing is what I was saying earlier. I wanted everyone, everyone who ever hears me give a talk or anybody who reads my book, I want them to know that, yes, I can help you through these other, you know, through this network of women, I can help you figure out how to move up in your workplace and change policy. But it is just as important to just stay in, put one foot in front of the other, get your job done, but ask for what you need, the flexibility you need, and be open about the challenges because we cannot solve a problem we cannot see. And that actually, when I talk to these women who are struggling with sort of moments of kind of ambition blips or just not knowing how they're going to make it work, one thing that really does fuel them is knowing that if they're a little transparent, it's not just a reflection on them. It's actually something that ultimately will improve the workplace for everyone. 
Right. And there's a selflessness, I think, that is, um, I don't want to say it's born when you become a parent, because certainly I, I had moments, I hope, of selflessness before I became a parent. But it is something that is certainly bolstered by it. And it is a wonderful instinct that we can really lean into in this moment. Mm -hmm. Well, clearly you are a supporter of women staying in the quote unquote career game, which I think is also really important. But I realize that as someone who doesn't have children and doesn't, you know, of course I can feel that way, but I haven't been there. Yeah. I mean, besides changing policies, I mean, why else do you think it's important for women to stay in the career game? Because I mean, it's hard. I mean, I, I can only imagine, especially as your kids get older and now you've got you know, not just, you know, daycare, but you've got yeah. kids with soccer practice and this practice. And I mean, you're just looking at the calendar and you're thinking, I cannot be at it, yeah. three places at once. So like, what are some ways that women can be set up for success when they do return to work and they're managing all of that? It is a lot and it never stops being a lot. I do believe that when you get through something like a transition that is as hard as the fifth trimester, you can look back on it and think, okay, I did that. <laughs> I did that. <laughs> I survived. But <laughs> I learned about, you know, drawing lines, saying, you know, saying yes with real intention, saying no to the things that don't have add value, that you can carry those over into other transitional times and know that you can make it through, which is really helpful. But it's interesting. I mean, it's interesting to hear to hear you ask that question because it is not for most American women. It isn't really a choice about whether or not your family needs the income and you you will or won't keep working. You know, the reality is for most women, they need to keep working in one way or another. And a lot of families are end up having one person stay home really almost entirely because of the cost of childcare, which is something else I think that needs to be supported and helped at a federal level. Absolutely. But you know, it's there's also there's a there's something a little bit scary about setting it up as a choice of you know stay home or go to work, which is that that we all start we start judging a little bit more freely when we have children, I think in part because you're making life and death decisions, you know, really about your, your kid all day long, even if they're little, you know, when they're, when they're tiny babies, it does feel like, you know, deciding to feed this baby now is really important, you know? <laughs> and so it's, I think a natural instinct to judge, but we get ourselves in trouble as women when we start judging sort of who's working and who's not working. And I have to tell you, I have I've learned a lot in the couple of years since I researched and wrote the book and have just been out in the world talking about it. I now absolutely believe that all women work, mm -hmm. whether you have kids, whether you don't have kids, whether you work for money or you do not work for money, it all counts as work. Some of it is just paid and some of it isn't. Right. Um, but when you look at what happens in the home just to maintain a home and the fact that we're all just trying to, I don't know, continue the human race, <laughs> we're all putting in work and the more we can, you know, band together and realize that, you know, the differences that we need to make in terms of the wage gap and in terms of valuing the work that does happen in the home, those changes are better made en masse with all of us working, you know, linking arms together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. Hey there, let's take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, care.com. Did you know that 60% of families do not have a stay-at-home parent? 70% of mothers and 90% of fathers are in their workforce. And while that's great, what about the help that you need with raising your family? Care.com is the world's largest digital marketplace for finding and managing family care. Whether you need childcare while you're at work or want to line up a date night sitter, Care.com is there for you. And I know how valuable that can be firsthand. Last year, I was attending an out-of-town wedding with friends and their six-month-old. Instead of my friends bringing their baby to the wedding, they turned to care.com for a sitter. The process was easy, fast, and the sitter was incredible. 
Even better was that my friends could find, book, and pay all in one place. Plus, they felt safe using Care.com because they were provided access to background checks, reference checks, qualifications, and more. A service that they were able to receive thanks to their upgrade from a free basic account to a premium account. To save 30% off your Care.com premium membership, visit Care.com backslash females when you subscribe. Again, save 30% off your Care.com premium membership by visiting care.com backslash females when you subscribe. All right, now let's get back to the show. And what's the boss approved way to request flex time or a change of duties? Because I also love that you have said that like you can also sometimes ask for what you need. and Maybe that's that you need to just have flexible hours or maybe you need to cut your job back to part time before, you know, Mm -hmm. like there's a lot of options, which is one of the things I love about the world we live in now that it isn't nine to five. We recognize that humans are not, you know, one size fit all. But I think even though people hear that, they're always kind of wondering, but how do I do that? Because my boss is a guy who loves nine to five or loves FaceTime and, mm-hmm. you know, requires me to be in here. So, I mean, if you can give us some examples, that would be awesome. Yeah, absolutely. So it is, I mean, it is hard to ask for this stuff. And it is for a lot of a lot of parents. It's the first time women and men that they've had to ask for any kind of flexibility, particularly particularly if you're somebody who listens to this podcast, right? Somebody who really values your career and you've leaned in and in and in and in. And now you have to say, oh, but wait, actually, I'm going to get charged a dollar a minute for every minute I'm late to daycare pickup. So by the way, boss, I've always worked till eight, but now I'm going to be leaving at 525 or whatever it is. So the first thing to keep in mind is just the basics of managing up. You know, realize that whomever you're asking this of has someone probably above him or her that they answer to. And so you need to arm this person with all of the information that they need to be able to grant this for you. You also should come into the conversation, not really with a request, but with a plan. So, mm-hmm. and, it, and it could be a couple of different ways to solve the same problem, but Hey, I have an idea of how to make this work. Here it is. And what you're handing to the person in that moment is I, I would actually go ahead and write it out, but, but keep it to like five bullets of how are you going to do your deliverables that the part of your you know, if you had to make a job description and you should know your job description in your mind before you go into these conversations, you know, how are you going to hit all those bullets and still get what you're asking for? Mm -hmm. So come in sort of anticipating what the objections might be. That's really helpful. Don't do what one super, super talented and sweet and like a little overly motivated person I met at a presentation recently did, which was come into your boss with five pages of single spaced (laughs) memo of how this is going to work. Cause that just looks scary. That just looks like something I should not say yes to. So first of all, (laughs) come in with a plan, um, not an ask. And then when you're reviewing it, say, you know, here's, here's one thing. What if we just try this? What if we try this for X number of weeks or months, whatever's going to work for you. And that allows your boss to feel like he or she isn't signing in blood, isn't necessarily setting some big precedent that's going to have to be rolled out company wide. And it gives you the flexibility, especially if you're talking about when you have a new baby to really reassess in a couple of months, how your needs have changed. Your baby's schedule may have changed. You may have gotten more used to one thing. Maybe your commute has changed because of a drop off or something. And it also keeps it from being a one-time I'm asking for flexibility conversation and more of a, this is how we all should be working and checking in with each other anyway, conversation that will be continuing now from, you know, from here till, you know, kingdom come. 
Right, right. I And I think that's an important takeaway is that that one conversation is going to be part of many conversations. So yes. you might as well get used to having these conversations and coming with plans. And I think women are really good at that. I mean, I think about how we manage schedules, whether it's just us on our own and all the things we want to get done. But I think women are really good at problem solving with that. And, yes. and, and so – you know, if this is a boost of confidence for anybody listening, is that you're probably already really good at figuring out how you're going to fit it all in. And so going to them with the plan versus the ask, I think is really powerful because you 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 already have it. Now you just need to say it to this other person. And do do a little research too, because mm-hmm. there's actually, there's some, um, some data that shows that actually a lot of people don't even know exactly what's available at their own workplace. So do that internal research. But also look around. Who are your competitors? Who do you want to beat? Who are you always nipping at the heels of? And what do they offer? Mm-hmm. Or how can you be a real leader, not just in your industry, but say in your region? And make a case for how actually having this, you know, this wish granted is going to make you a better employer, a more desirable employer, and you know, keep women in the workplace, which I, I think we can all agree everybody wants at this point. Right. Absolutely. And what's one thing that can stop any, I want to quit attack because I, I mean, I have, I want to quit attacks. <laughs> so I can only imagine what it will be like when you've got, you know, kids, job, all that stuff that you're managing. So what's one thing that some, a woman can do that will stop that, that attack? So it's interesting when I did the research for the book, I think I told you all of the kind of kinds of diversity that I was going for. I didn't even think to look for a diversity of ambition. And I was so delighted to see that I had like waitresses I interviewed who were super ambitious and multiple degree lawyer businesswomen who were not feeling so ambitious. But it seems like almost everybody had a blip of I want to quit. So I was like, oh, this is going to be a chapter. So (laughs) let's look at it. And I did the research and there's actually there's five sort of distinct things that you can do in that moment. But I would say the most effective that really has research that backs it is to make yourself a list. And there's very few places in my book where I say make a list because like it's kind of (laughs) lame. Actually do this. Make a list of all of the things that you get out of your workplace and that your workplace gets out of you. So that first list can be absolutely a paycheck. It can also be camaraderie. It can be that you really enjoy mentoring. It can be kind of the soft skills soft skills stuff as well as the hard, and then do the same commensurate list for what your workplace gets out of you. And there's actually, there's research that shows that if you are in a point of feeling stressed out, that the compromises that you make will be more clear headed. And I love that there's sort of the assumption that you will be making compromise because nothing is perfect and we will all be compromising, but that you're making more clear headed, well-intended compromises. If you have those two lists in mind, so you feel valued you understand the value that you bring, and it makes it much easier to get through a time of transition. Mm-hmm. I really like that you mentioned the diversity aspect, and I know you've talked about it a couple times. I uh, I recently went to this event, and it was talking about restaurant workers and about I think they said about 70% of restaurant workers are women and the hour, you know, a lot of states don't even have an hourly wage for restaurants. Yeah. They, they make, a lot of states make them rely on tips and not mm-hmm. actually give them an hourly wage. And I mean, I left that just being like ready to take Job on. Course. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. it's very irritating. And so, you know, just the fact that you included that in your book is super, super important because I think a lot of us, I don't want to say forget, but I mean, as you said, it was hard for you and you were from a place of privilege. What were the other, you know, from a diversity perspective, there's obviously the hourly workers, but can you shed some light just because I want to make sure everyone recognizes and because we don't, 
you don't hear about it as much as and like you said, like when you started your research, you didn't necessarily think you were looking for that, but then it like yeah. really opened your eyes. So could you just shed a little light on the other diverse, I guess, like backgrounds or audiences that inc- were included in sure. your survey? Sure, absolutely. So I really learned, so, uh, the people I learned the most from were the ones who were the most different from me. Go figure. It's not that shocking. Right. And yet actually, <laughs> like I, I continued to be shocked by it. The single moms, if I can lump them together, and they were, you know, there were many approaches to single motherhood. There, there, there were those who had gotten sperm donors. There were those who had gotten divorced very soon after having a baby. And they had they kind of had the least amount of mom guilt and BS around asking for help. They just knew at their core that in order to take good care of this baby, they needed to take care of themselves. And that would require finding support in whatever form they could take it. And so I, I loved that. And I, I felt like we all actually, you know, partnered or not should learn from that. I also spoke to a handful of adoptive moms who face really different challenges because you don't necessarily have some of the physical um, challenges around breastfeeding for the most part. Some actually you can, you can actually, there is a way that you can breastfeed as an adoptive mom, but none of the ones I spoke to did around breastfeeding, around healing from delivery, around pregnancy. But there, there were a lot of people who said, you know what, as an adoptive mom, I felt like I was, you know, no more than just like a dad. And Mm -hmm. first of all, like how many things are wrong with that statement? Like dads are equally valuable, first of all. And secondly, you know, the fact that you haven't physically been through a change doesn't mean that you aren't physically needed for that baby and that the emotional change, which is usually quite abrupt and sudden with adoption, because you find out you're getting a baby, boom, you have a baby. You haven't had the on-ramping or off-ramping time to prepare necessarily are real. And I mean, I just left all of those conversations thinking like, you know what? Everybody needs everything. We all need the Mm -hmm. options to be able to take the time we need. I also spoke to a lot of women who worked for themselves, which at the point I was doing the interviewing was new for me. And now I, now I do full-time work for myself. And so I get it. Um, there was a lot of boundary drawing. There was a lot of, I had to go back to work the while in labor, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and yet I don't regret it. And yet this is the choice I made for myself. And so then it became about how can you be a considerate boss to yourself and, you know, and really embrace the choices that you're making. And I just, I gotta tell you through and through, I really learned to check my judgment. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm sure there are some ways that I'm still biased and don't know it because that's sort of the nature of bias. But the more I heard, the more I learned, the more I understood how privileged my position had been. And yet I also knew how hard it was. So right. it just made me have so much empathy and have so much belief in the strength of these women to have gotten through these situations. Absolutely. Hey there, let's take a quick break so I can tell you about our sponsor for today's episode, a company I'm really loving right now called Beauty by Design. So I don't know if any of you can relate to this at all, but figuring out what works well for your skin in the overwhelming sea of products is really frustrating. And it's even worse when you do finally pull the trigger and buy something really expensive just to learn that it's not a match for your skin type. Well, that's why I really love Beauty by Design. They offer an easy solution to the problem by connecting you with online estheticians that will diagnose your skin for $15 and curate the perfect assortment of vegan, cruelty-free, and natural products all for you via text message. That's right, text message. In under two minutes, I answered a few questions about my skin, put in a price point, and sent in a makeup-free selfie. It was all very simple and fast since it was over text, 
and I was able to chat with my esthetician on my own time and when it worked for me. My esthetician was super helpful at addressing my rosacea issues, which is great because summer is definitely going to bring out the heat and bring that out as well. And now I'm a true believer in beauty by design because they offer thousands of product combinations that help my skin get exactly what it needs. Plus, with no subscription service, you're not locked into anything. You can order the products when you need them and shipping and returns are always free. If you've ever felt overwhelmed by the skincare options out there and you're looking for more natural products that are perfectly tailored to your skin, then take my recommendation to try Beauty by Design. To experience the world's most personalized skincare, go to beautybydesign.com backslash females and use the promo code females. First time customers get 20% off. That's beautybydesign.com slash females and use the promo code females to get 20% off. A big thank you to Beauty by Design for sponsoring this episode. And now let's get back to the show. Well, that's actually a great segue into my next question, which is really about our collective expectations for how to be a quote-unquote successful woman, a successful employee, and a successful mother. And they're really probably pretty crazy. Um, (laughs) And, you know, you throw in judgment and bias on top of all that, and it's not easy. Um, How do we manage our expectations versus real-life realities? And whether you're already a parent or you're maybe going to, or you hope to be a parent one day. I mean, as you said, sometimes you, you have this bias and reality is probably going to check you pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I do think that we are living in a time of a crisis of expectations and it's born out of good stuff. It's because, you know, this is a generation of women who were largely raised to believe in spite of political climate as it is right now. When we were being raised, we were taught, you can do anything, girl. Right. And so, and so we have, and we did. And When we are home with a newborn baby, there is this impulse, and even when pregnant, to just become an expert in all things baby. And, you know, a generation ago, two generations ago, in other countries, it's not that way. You you have an expectation, actually, that you will have a great circle of support around you. People will be coming into the home to check on you. You will have great postpartum care. It doesn't really exist in the United States. And instead, we just assume, you know, you only know your own bubble of normal, so you assume it's normal. The other thing that's really, that exacerbates the problem is just the disparity in the cultural expectations of what women and men take in terms of parental leave. So when mom is home on a parental leave that is longer than dad's, learning everything on the ground, particularly if she's, you know, at all type A, even if she's type B plus, she wants to get it all right and she's learning it all. And dad, perhaps because of the wage gap or, you know, in something that actually propels the wage gap further has gone back to work thinking, or perhaps it's just the reality, his work is worth more, right? Mm -hmm. So he goes back to work. He doesn't learn these things in spite of having the best intentions and wanting to fast forward to the end of mom's maternity leave. Mom goes back to work. You both get home at the end of the day. And that's when the second shift starts and guess who knows how to do everything and guess who wants it done her way. And guess who has the highest expectations of herself? Right. Mom. Right. And dad doesn't. So there are solutions. I think one thing that is the most effective that can be done kind of in any degree, it could be done for just a couple days or done for a couple months. If your partner or the dad has some parental leave that they can tack on to the end of yours, that will give your partner time with the baby at home to really learn things on the ground. Mm -hmm. It lets you go back to work feeling like, oh, okay, baby's in the hands of someone, you know, who loves him or her so, so much in his family. 
it lets that parent, that partner learn, you know, really in the trenches without your help and, and do some things, you know, his way that may not be the same as yours, but are still okay. And it lets the baby get a little bit older and a little bit less fragile for when you have to leave, leave her in someone else's care. Mm -hmm. So it just, it works, the, the payoff there, there's actually research that shows that for every month of, of paternity leave a dad takes, mom's um, earnings increase by 7%. I mean, it's a startling statistic. Wow, and yeah, I never you, heard that. You can you can see why it's true, though, because the work in the home probably eventually gets divided up much more evenly. Mom is able to go back and focus more. Uh, there's a lot of factors that work into it. There's another study I saw that showed that um, dads who take, and this must be dads from like, you know, 20 years ago at this point, if it's being studied, dads who took parental leave have better relationships with their teenage daughters. I mean, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's hard so to have a good relationship really, with a teenage girl. Really <laughs> yeah. No, and I, I'm kind of curious too, for someone who's listening to this, who's like, oh shoot, I didn't ask my husband yeah. to do that when the baby <laughs> was first uh, born. Um, how can you like remedy this so that you, because I would imagine part of that statistic also comes from the fact that that means that when you're at work, you can just have peace of mind that someone is taking care of the baby. You're right. They maybe aren't, aren't doing it the way you would like it done, but you know, we all have to get over that. So if someone's listening to this and they're like, oh man, I, I didn't do that. Can they, I mean, can you kind of like enforce this or you know, yeah, encourage your husband absolutely. to get more. Okay. There's not so, like a newborn rule and then you no, miss it. Oh no, no, no. You don't, you don't, there's no, there's no, what's the, the legal term. Oh, I forget the, the oh, shoot. You know what I'm talking about? The, the, when you have a limit term oh, limit on how long you can like you statute can of something. limitations or something like yeah, that. Statute of limitations, <laughs> yeah. yes. You can course correct on this like indefinitely. I mean, I, I, my husband and I do this all the time. He only in the last year started handling the mornings because I take the kids to school. So he gets them you know, they get themselves dressed, but he makes sure that, you know, they're wearing, they're wearing uniform appropriate pants that are clean and gets them breakfast. And mm -hmm. it makes such a difference in my day. So it is something you can course correct. I talked to a mom who had, uh, this was at a law firm fairly recently. And she had, I think a nine month old and she had just sat down with her husband. And the thing is that the, the logistics and the physical labor of mom probably evens up and gets a little lighter, the older the child gets, but the mental load, if you don't, if you don't sort of get in there early, the mental load only grows. Right. So she did to prevent that, which is so, so smart, was she sat her partner down, her husband down, and the two of them just made freehand a list of every single thing that needs to happen in their home in order to have the family life that they hope for. So this is everything from, you know, managing the bills to, you know, remembering extended relatives, birthdays. And if you're going to send a card, if you're going to send a present mm -hmm. to, you know, buying diapers, you know, ordering supplies on time, groceries, cooking, all of it. And there's actually a study that was done by the Gottman Institute, um, which studies relationships that showed that when you have a baby, the, the number of tasks in the home is 300 per day. So this was a long list that she and her husband came up with. And I'm going to guess, and this is my bias, but I'm going to guess that she put more things on that list than he did, but that's okay. Cause mm -hmm. he was there to witness how many things were in her head, right? All on paper, they could look at it together and choose, okay, which are you going to do? Cause you enjoy them or you're good at them. And which am I going to do? Cause I enjoy them or I'm good at them. Which things do we both hate? And we're going to divide up, which things do we both hate? And we're just going to let them go. We're just going to make a little marital pact here to just maybe not send gifts for grandparents' birthdays, but instead do a call and that's okay. Right. And seeing it all there and knowing that they had this list to come back to and check in with, I think has been extremely beneficial to them. And it's, it's advice that I've given, you know, in a lot of talks since then. 
Wow, that's incredible. Well, I we're going to move into rapid fire, but I just love this conversation because I feel like a lot of times I have conversations about working motherhood. It feels very doom and gloom, but I feel like you've been giving very actionable um, and like digestible tips on what we can do and also not sugarcoating like it's going to be hard. Like, you you know, <laughs> like it's just going to be really challenging. Um, and I also just really appreciate that you shared the insight of other women's perspectives and, and clearly your book, The Fifth Trimester, I mean, it should be like required reading, but I'm sure mothers are like, I got enough on my plate. Oh, it's on Audible. You can listen to it. Oh, that's a good idea. Okay, so let's move into rapid fire. Starting with a mantra that makes you feel powerful is? Okay, this is mortifying. It's what I did when I was a kid, and it's what I still do when I have a moment of self-doubt. So put your own name in this. But I say, okay, I'm just going to do my Laurenist best. (laughs) I love that. I've never heard that before either. Did that come from like a movie or a book you read? No, it came from my own like dorky nine-year-old brain, you know, where I just, I was, I don't even remember what it was about. It was something that I was having a hard time with and I thought I'm going to do my best, but what is my best? My Laurenus best is like a really deep felt creative best. I'm going to try. Oh, I love that. And also it works because my name is Lauren. So <laughs> that mantra is great for me. Yeah. Okay. Second one is you have an hour to yourself. You'll probably spend it doing. I would love to say napping, but I don't think that I can wind down and nap that quickly. So instead I'm going to say going for a run while simultaneously listening to the daily or to another podcast that is, um, more relaxing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I would do the same thing. I would just replace running with walking (laughs) if I'm being very honest. (laughs) Um, your best working mom tip, best working mom tip is to remember that no matter how much money you make versus your partner makes that the work you both do in the morning counts. So split the nighttime wakeups as best you can. Doesn't always work for, um, for if you're nursing in the very beginning, but like, I mean, if you have kids who are older, you know that they're still up in the night sometimes. And what the sleep research shows is if you can get four hours straight in a row, that's two REM cycles. That's enough to help keep you steady and sane and not acting like, you know, unfocused and as if you're drunk in the morning. (laughs) So, but just remember to lean on your partner as a resource if you're lucky enough to have that partner. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And how do you plan to disrupt your career in 2019? I plan to figure out what my next book is going to be. Oh, the sixth trimester. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) No, no, no. I'm in the 33rd. I think I'm probably going to, I haven't decided what my lane is. But I think my lane is probably something about supporting women through transitions. Mm. Um, so we'll see well, what that next transition is. It's definitely the most popular question we get asked at Career Contessa is how do I make a career transition, which I recognize is like a very big question, not very specific, but it's everything from tradi- uh, transitions with their um, schedule to industries to mm-hmm. you name it. And I agree. I think career transitions has become really kind of the 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 word that really encompasses I'm not truly loving what I'm doing right now or something mm-hmm. needs to change how do I transition to something else so it's like chapter two in a lot of ways so well that would be great on behalf of all of us <laughs> we'd love for you to do some <laughs> can research I add, can I add one thing too mm-hmm. yes. I have also taken a vow very recently to not do anything anymore any work for exposure When you write a book or when you have a new business to promote, there is obviously some time in the beginning when you are just trying to build awareness. Mm -hmm. But especially when I'm up on stage talking about the motherhood penalty, talking about the wage gap, talking about how to negotiate and advocate for your worth in the workplace, I have taken this vow. I no longer do things for exposure unless they are for needy groups that do not have access to a resource like me. Mm -hmm. So 
charities, nonprofits. Other than that, if I'm going into corporate America, I am charging them my worth. And it's, it's taken a big, deep breath for me to be able to do that. And it's, it's started working. So I want to carry that through 2019. Well, and now that you've publicly told all of us, we'll make sure you stick to it. No, I think that's fantastic. And we had a woman on the podcast for Noosh Tarabi who said that women entrepreneurs actually struggle the most with not just setting a rate, but making sure that they are paid that rate. Because obviously when you're an entrepreneur, everyone wants to negotiate, yada, yada. And it's, you know, you just, if you give them an inch, they'll take a mile. And so her advice was um, very strongly about doing exactly what you're what you're going to do. So I think that's really smart. And I'm sorry we didn't get to get into the motherhood penalty, but we'll have to have you back on because there's so much to talk about with motherhood that Absolutely. it's, you know, we'll make it digestible for now and then we'll break <laughs> off and have another one again. But thank you, Lauren, so much for joining us today and sharing all this advice. Your book is called The Fifth Trimester. And thank you again. Thank you. I really appreciate you having me on. That was Lauren Smith Brody, author of The Fifth Trimester and a Woman Disrupting Working Motherhood. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Females. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to The Females and leave us a review. We're so grateful to hear from you, our listeners, and here's what Wu Sarah Wu on iTunes recently said. Like all other career contested content, this podcast is a must listen for any working women today. It covers real-world challenges in an easy-to-listen, organized, thematic format that I love. Not only are the guests from a great range of backgrounds, but Lauren does a great job asking all the questions I'm curious about too. The perfect length and format, this podcast continues to be at the top of my list for my daily commute. Thank you so much, Sarah. I'm so happy to hear that you're enjoying our podcast themes. Um, And if you want me to read your review on the show, you know what to do. Leave a review on iTunes. You can also DM us on Instagram. Uh, We'll basically take reviews any way you want to give them to us. Ready for more smart career advice? Sign up for our free 28-day career kickstart via the link in the show notes or head over to careercontessa.com. You'll get one email a week that includes everything you need to uplevel your career. It's free and it can totally change your life. I'll be back next Tuesday with Candace Morgan, head of inclusion and diversity at Pinterest. But until then, you can follow us on at Contessa on Instagram. Share this episode with your work wives and Instagram community with hashtag the females podcast and listen to this sneak peek of next week's episode. In terms of a search engine, Pinterest is very visually for focus, right? So right. how can we make sure that in some ways the experience of looking at a visual platform like Pinterest, let's say that, you know, we just profiled a user who's dyslexic and is very much using Pinterest as a way to do their search and discovery as opposed to other platforms. And so you start to realize, like, if we're intentional about that in the first place, we can really enhance everyone's experience.